Analyze Asia is brought to you by Esavel. Do you manage your own IT for distributed teams across Asia Pacific? Then you know how painful that can be. Esavel helps your in-house team by taking cumbersome tasks off their hands and giving them the tools to manage IT effectively. Get help across Asia Pacific from onboarding, procuring devices to real-time IT support and offboarding. With our state-of-the-art platform, gain full control of all your IT infrastructure in one place. Our team of IT support pros are keen to help you grow. Check out esevel.com and get a demo today. Use our referral code ASIA for 10% off. Terms and conditions apply. The vision is to future-proof global real estate. Now, why real estate? One thinks of it as just one industry, right? Well, it's $300 trillion. There is no asset class, no industry that is remotely as valuable. Not all the treasury bonds in the world, not all the stock exchanges in the world, not all the real GDP of the economies of the world adds up to the value of global land and property assets. $300 trillion. Now I ask you, Bernard, what will any of it be worth tomorrow, one year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, in different places in the world? We used to have a pretty stable answer to these questions. The truth is the valuation model is broken because it's very antiquated. And not only is the appraisal or valuation model broken, it's even more broken because it never took climate change into consideration. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the premier podcast dedicated to dissecting the pulse of business technology and media in Asia. I'm Bernard Leung, and the future is moving to the north because of climate change. How does the human race invest in climate adaptation? With me today, Parag Khanna, CEO and founder of Climate Alpha, in addition to being a well-known author and thought leader on how people move across the globe and connect through the new digital Silk Roads. Parag, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to see you again, Bernard. So since our last conversation, what have you been up to? Well, I've been running Climate Alpha and I've been running it nonstop morning till night. Really, the process did begin earlier this year or really over the last two years in stealth, but we launched in Q1 of this year. So the year has just absolutely flown by. So I really, um, I do commit myself to big projects one at a time, whether it's a book or a corporate venture. But I would say this is really on a scale and speed and intensity that I've never really put myself through. And it's been exhilarating. Yes. And we talk about this on a couple of occasions during dinners. And I also wanted to know what Climate Alpha is about. But there's also been a lot happening across the globe. Given that you're one of the most avid geopolitical watchers in the world, I guess I want to ask your thoughts on the following. What do you think about the China COVID zero policy and the ongoing protests in China? Well, there are so many levels to look at it, but one would just be the complexity analysis side of it, which is to say the feedback loop from COVID originating in China, then spreading around the world and now coming back and being intense in China and causing the kind of damage to the economy and to, in many ways, the social fabric that it did in other societies. And so the lockdown policy clearly only succeeded for a limited period of time and no walls are impenetrable, you might say, is one of the lessons from this. And then the political lesson would be that, of course, China being a vertically integrated authoritarian system does not have those internal feedback loops. The global feedback loop came back to hit it hard as it's doing right now. The internal feedback loop has been missing. 
which is to say there's just not enough sensitivity to the needs, concerns of, of everyday people. And therefore, they've really pushed way too hard in terms of attempting to suppress COVID with the zero COVID policy. And now you have these unprecedented protests around the country and so forth. So really, it's something that I've written about for 20 years, which is how to calibrate political regimes and the stiffness of regimes. And they have. And what happens is that countries do not offer enough of a release valve to the public at the time that they should. Now, in some countries, that results in the Arab Spring-like phenomenon, revolutions that topple governments. That's not going to be the case in China, obviously. But that said, it will be a lesson learned. And ultimately, I judge countries' governments by not whether they get everything right or everything wrong, but do they learn from their mistakes? So this is the point in time in which we'll have to see how they respond going forward. How about the China and US saber wrestling around Taiwan? I think this couple of months, there's been a lot of tension. And I also see that the ongoing protests have pushed the Chinese government to start easing the COVID zero policy. So where do you see that going? Well, I think region-wide, clearly there's a differentiation now between how governments are handling the COVID situation. But what it reminds me of is that I've thought of Asia very much as being four distinct kinds of sub-regional anchors, you know, uh, Japan, China, you might say the rest of Northeast Asia or tiger economies, the sort of wealthy littoral Asia, and then, of course, South and Southeast Asia, which I call the fourth wave. Now, as you know, economically, I think of these as four part, four motors of the Asian engine or vehicle that aren't always moving at the same speed, but they are generally keeping Asia moving in the right direction. But politically, I see an, a pattern of divergence now because clearly there's a high degree of suspicion of China, even at the same time as you have the regional comprehensive economic partnership tying countries more closely together. The supply chain competition among countries in the region is what's most fascinating. And as I'm so focused on that issue of who's winning the tug of war over infrastructure, supply chains and value chains and the role of the West in that is so fascinating because it's helping to accelerate the diversification of the Asian manufacturing footprint. And that is actually helping to accelerate the rise of South and Southeast Asia. So ultimately, the way this all comes together is that we're on a sturdier path than before towards an Asia that is not unipolar and dominated by China, but rather that is what Asia should be and has historically been, which is multipolar, multi-civilizational, clearly China being more powerful than others, but not a hegemon. So if I shift this to what's happening in Europe, any potential chance of peaceful resolution between Russia and Ukraine? I mean, the operative word is resolution. Peaceful is not a word that can be used at this point, because that peaceful would normally imply that one had arrived at an amicable settlement prior to hostilities. There's no way that one will ever be able to use the word peaceful for any aspect of this war. But resolution is the very important word that you use. And I think one of the lessons of this conflict is that it had been referred to for a decade as a frozen conflict. And what something I've been saying for at least 15 years is that we should never use this term because the term frozen conflict is this very convenient fiction that places are under the radar, they're calm, they're not destabilizing, they're not popping up in the news, therefore we don't have to care about them. And as someone who's studied political geography, I'm always, I always remind people, any unsettled border is a powder keg, right? Any place in the world where a border dispute has not been resolved with mutual recognition of sovereign authority on either side of that line, 
and codified in some treaty or in the United Nations, that could be a war. And that's obviously what has happened yet again here. And this tends to happen in post-colonial countries in decades past, and now it happens in the periphery of the former union. So I believe there must be a binding settlement. And I believe that part of that process, that the end state in that is that Ukraine becomes both a member of the EU and of NATO. Uh, and that there is, in some ways, a hostile border, and you have an iron curtain, if you will, a new iron curtain, and that Russia is forced to accept this, it may gain some territorial concessions based on territory that Ukraine and Western supporters are not able to get back. I believe that would actually be a worthwhile trade to embed and secure Ukraine proper into the Western institutions, and then to begin that process, of course, of rehabilitation, reconstruction, and embedding it in Western alliance. That comes to my final piece, which is what about the energy crisis that is coming to Europe this winter? I listen to a lot of German news commentary and analysis, and the energy executives and public officials are quite in unison right now that they'll make it through this winter. Their sufficient reserves are there. Sufficient gas, ironically, has still been coming from Russia and has been stockpiled. Alternative sources have been picked up. U.S. LNG exports have gone through the roof. Conservation efforts have been strong. People are turning their heat down. Everyone I speak to in Europe these days on Zoom calls is bundled up. And either because the gas has mandatorily been cut or whether they're doing so in solidarity. And uh, the German government, for example, has issued a lot of public statements encouraging people to make those conservation efforts, and they've been doing that. So frankly, Europe will be okay this winter. Maybe they're lucky for climate change. You know, mild winters, no more snow in the Alps and all these other things. So really, that's not the concern. It's how fast can they transition and have an energy base load. Obviously, they'll go back to nuclear kicking and screaming, but there is such an abundant distribution or diversified supply of gas that they are making those efforts or have been making those efforts for the last six months that will pay off in terms of gas supply. So I think they'll be okay. And of course, energy crisis also means that there is some indirect consequence, which is what we are going to be talking about, that is climate change. And that comes to the main subject of the day is climate alpha. I think we have talked about it and I'm pretty excited for the first time to really get you to really dive deeper onto the subject itself. So let's establish the baseline before we go deep into climate alpha. I have a mutual friend, uh, Ravi Chidabaram, on the show recently when he talked about the article that you both collaborated on That's investing right. in climate adaptation in Harvard Business Review. It's a pretty good article, I would say. I would urge my audience to take a read on it. To refresh my audience, why should we invest in climate adaptation and how does this lead to the market opportunity that climate alpha is solving? Well, what Ravi and I did in the essay is to contrast mitigation and adaptation. Now, that is a common distinction that has been made for a long time. But the most recent data shows that we have devoted the vast majority, by which I mean more than 90% of the total capital devoted to addressing climate change, has been committed to mitigation efforts, which is reducing emissions, greening supply chains, and so forth. Whereas less than 10% has gone into adaptation. And adaptation is everything around retrofitting the built environment, building seawalls and doing water desalination, relocating populations, all of the things that we physically need to do to adapt to survive. And if you think about the tragedy 
of uh, daily, monthly, weekly casualty toll from climate disasters, I think that the mitigation camp has really been winning too much. You know, they've lulled us into focusing on 2040. If we can meet the Paris Agreement targets, if we can reduce emissions by X, Y, Z, then we will have staved off the worst. That may be true, but it also ignores the fact that hundreds of millions of people are being displaced right now and their lives are being damaged, their productivity is being compromised, their survival is at risk because we're focusing only on mitigation and not on adaptation. So that was what the essay was about. And what and it was about what business can do right now. There is obviously a lot of gray areas and overlap between mitigation and adaptation, as there should be. If you deploy nuclear power, portable nuclear power stations, of course, you're contributing to mitigation and to adaptation, right? Because you're reducing the need for places for communities to be located near certain energy supplies or ports and so on. So we're not hard and fast about that, but we believe that the real estate industry, the agricultural industry, some of the biggest economic sectors in the world economy should be doing much more for adaptation. And of course, it's very profitable because there's significant market failures in those areas. And what is the inspiration behind starting Climate Alpha? Well, it really goes back to something you and I spoke about a while ago, which was the book Move. And uh, Move was my most recent sort of study of the future of human geography. And I set out to answer this question, where will people live in the year 2050? And I've been asking that question for about 12 years or so. And one of my colleagues, I wrote an essay about this a decade ago. And that sort of stuck in my mind. And having written a bunch of books on geography, the one subject area or field or domain of geography that I hadn't explicitly tackled is human geography, which is, of course, our distribution around the world, ethnographic issues, demographic factors, and so forth, to really bring that together and look at what the drivers will be of the future of human geography. And of course, it's everything from geopolitics and refugee crises to economic and technological dislocation to the search for a better life and bridging labor shortages in economies and of course, climate change. So I took all of those driving factors together in a multi-causal way and painted this complex picture of the future of human geography. And in the, around the same time that I was doing the research, uh, my brother and I were trying to help my parents figure out where to retire. And this was just uh, right before COVID. And uh, they were leaving New York, they got sick of the snow, and we were had to do so much research to figure, well, which place has a good healthcare infrastructure, which place has climate resilience and clean air and good infrastructure and all these other things. And we said, surely there should be an app for this. And that's where the idea struck me that I should really build this. I'm writing a book about it. My parents faced this situation. Why is there not a product for it? And so the other part of the puzzle is building a software company, because obviously one could say, hey, come to me and I'll do lots of desktop research for you on the best place for you to retire. But I said, you know what, actually, you can automate this. So we really pushed the limits in this company and our software SaaS model on how you can automate these processes of identifying the, the most and least resilient geographies of the future. So as the CEO and founder of Climate Alpha, what is the vision and mission of the company? The vision is to future-proof global real estate. Now, why real estate? One thinks that it's just one industry, right? Well, it's $300 trillion. There is no asset class, no industry that is remotely as valuable. Not all the treasury bonds in the world, not all the stock exchanges in the world, not all the real GDP of the economies of the world adds up to the value of global land and property assets. $300 trillion. Now, I ask you, Bernard, what will any of it be worth tomorrow, 
one year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, in different places in the world. We used to have a pretty stable answer to these questions. The truth is the valuation model is broken because it's very antiquated. And not only is the appraisal or valuation model broken, it's even more broken because it never took climate change into consideration. So we had to take complexity science and apply it to this antiquated industry evaluation, and then take as our subject the $300 trillion of global property assets. So we viewed it as something that's essential because it's the bedrock of our, literally our civilization, and also because it's obviously a great market failure, again, and to build a product around it. So the mission is to future-proof global real estate, and the way in which we go about it is through a software platform with, that has now ingested 1,500 data sets covering climate models, covering real estate transaction history, covering socioeconomic and fiscal attributes and characteristics of different locations, to train it all on neural networks. And we've built something called a scenario forecaster for which we filed a patent. And that scenario forecaster is the software platform on which we run these models and we blend data with clients and we then make these valuation forecasts on those assets. So I think you've given a pretty clear high-level description of how the AI platform in Climate Alpha work and how it purportedly solved the problem for the customer. What would be the customer profiles which Climate Alpha target then? Yes. So we work with, uh, you would say, three large buckets, uh, real estate developers, asset managers, and the insurance sector. And these are the three sectors most directly involved, obviously. So with real estate developers, we've worked with America's largest home builder, which is called Lennar. It's a Fortune 100-ish company. So they build 50,000 homes a year. They buy $6 billion of land a year. We help them identify the geographies where the land was the cheapest, but where valuations of property are rising so they can do an arbitrage play in their acquisition strategy. So that's one example. With asset managers, we're working with some of the biggest institutional investors, whether it's pensions and also real estate private equity. So those are firms that own 20, 50, $100 billion worth of property assets around the world, particularly in North America. And we help them, again, do these risk-adjusted valuations on thousands and thousands of buildings and properties. Uh, for real estate investment trusts, REITs, in America, there are 250 listed REITs. They contain 150,000 buildings. We've put all 150,000 listed REIT assets on our platform to generate valuations for the future for the, every one of those assets under different climate mo models and scenarios for each location that those properties are in. And that's being used by institutional investors to index and to do quarterly reweighting of their investment portfolios. Now we're also working with insurers to help them refine their models as well and to calibrate the premiums that they offer to customers based on their locations. So those are some examples of what we've already been doing with the kinds of customers we've been working with and how they use us. Can you double click a little bit like what are the specific features in your product suite, for example, in Climate Alpha and how do they actually leverage like big data analytics and AI to make forecasts and predictions? Yes, absolutely. So I mentioned earlier that we take this approach called wide data, right? So 1500 data sets and climate is actually a small component of them because climate data sets and models that are produced by the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and, and the, the models that are called CMIP5 and CMIP6, you don't want to deviate from those because they each contain dozens of models 
that have been done by obviously best in class industry consortia. So we take that as one subset of models, and those cover things like flood, storm, heat, fire, drought, sea level rise. Now, the important thing is that those are non-stationary variables. You can't actually historically backtest their impact on property values because they haven't had uh, a historical impact. You can backtest the other things, which is to say the crime rate, the education level, the life expectancy, the population density, the building permitting, the air quality, all of those, the, the investment rate, all of those things do have backtestable backtestability. So we've gone back to 1975 and reconstructed basically to take the United States as our core market, obviously the largest real estate market with the most data. So we went back to 1975 and reconstructed it using this machine learning model, but therefore we were able to capture the sensitivities between any pair and all the variables against each other. Now for the forward modeling, that's why we need a scenario forecaster, because you need to be able to say, well, what if you raise interest rates in this place and you spend more money on infrastructure here and the population density increases, but the intensity of storms or droughts or heat waves rises in that place? How are all these things going to affect each other simultaneously and generate an impact on the price of an asset for the year 2033 or 2038? How are you going to figure all that out? And again, you really can't do it with any other toolkit other than machine learning. So that's why our CTO, Abraham Wu, at the Future Cities Lab at the National University of Singapore, really spent a lot of time in, in our stealth mode, our stealth phase, building this scenario forecasting platform to be able to run these models. And we do, we have a number of neat features to, to remove the black box element of AI, because obviously a lot of people say, hey, how did you get your model? It's a very typical question. So we do this thing called feature correlation analysis, where we bring out the key variables which had the highest or lowest impact on the change in the valuation. So our core product anyway is called the climate price. There's the baseline price expectation of an asset for any given time period. And then there's the climate price, which is to say, what will it actually be given the climate profile of that location? And so the climate price is the output that's actually generated. And this is so important for everyone from asset managers, investment professionals, even public sector officials, because um, they are making forecasts and expectations around their tax revenue, for example, and you can't calculate your property taxes unless what properties are going to be worth. So all of those kinds of things are products in our model. And again, this is a SaaS platform. It's all automated. I think just now when you're talking about the customer profiles, you share some customer highlights, any additional customer highlights that you want to talk about that may be of interest to people out there who may be interested in using the climate change models and the AI and based on all the different data sets that you have to mm -hmm. try to find which is the best real estate to make purchases. Right. So a couple of things. One is that this is not just for trillion dollar sovereign wealth funds and for multi $100 million real estate, private equity funds and pension funds. This is also for retail investors and for family offices. So for anyone who's saying, I own one property or I own 12 properties and they're distributed on, how do I, how long should I hold on to each one? So when you upload those assets onto our platform and you run scenarios on them, you can then have a disposition timeline basically, which says, we'll sell this asset in this year, hold on to this asset for X number of years and so forth. And you can keep the data on the platform and keep checking back as we update the scenarios based upon the latest quarterly data that comes in, whether it's from the census or updates on climate models or fiscal spending and these kinds of things. We have a final product called Alpha Finder. So it is what it is called, 
which is to say it's an indexation tool. It takes dozens and dozens, almost a hundred of our data sets, and it allows you to run your own hypothesis. So you can say, I'm thinking of buying some property or retiring, and I don't know where to go. Well, what are the, or I want to build a fund of climate resilient assets. Well, you would go into Alpha Finder and you would say, let me look for places that have the cleanest air and let me find places with clean air and low crime and high groundwater availability and proximity to infrastructure and a high life expectancy and so on and so on. Pick any criteria you want. So our platform will automatically find the locations that have the highest correlation to your inputs, to your criteria. You may have one criterion or you may have 35 criteria. It's entirely up to you. We'll automatically display for you a ranking, a list, and a map of the zip codes, in the case of the United States, postal codes for Canada and UK, of the locations that best meet your criteria. And then those are the ones that you may want to go and invest in. So again, you can have an, a one-use case or you could be building a whole portfolio of assets. I'm, I'm pretty curious, what are the revenue sources for Climate Alpha? I think the other question that will come to mind once you build the revenue sources is then you, how do you scale Climate Alpha as it grows and where do you see the business multipliers coming from? Mm -hmm. Well, we're a sort of end of infinity platform, right? So you can the goal is to capture hundreds of thousands, millions really of property assets onto the platform because there's so much learning that goes on as you're able to update the data on how various trends, whether it is rising interest rates or rising climate risk has affected valuations. So one is continuing just to amass lots of data and customers who give us lots of property to train our data, to build our data lake. Again, for us, whether we're running an analysis on one property or 150,000 properties takes the same amount of time. So really this is a software platform. So building the credibility of having large customers with lots of assets is one key priority for us. And we're underway with that. Another is to transform in some ways into an asset manager and to partner with institutions to set up managed accounts or to actually build a fund. To this day, Bernard, you'll be surprised. No pension fund, no sovereign wealth fund, no investment bank that we are aware of, and we've really talked to all of them in the world, has built a dedicated fund for climate resilient real assets, right? It does not exist. There's literally not a single large visible, either listed, unlisted, private, recognized fund of any scale, meaningful scale, that is devoted, whose asset selection is driven only by the climate resilience of the geography. And yet, I would say, I, my argument is that the most precious asset class in the whole world is climate resilient geography. And yet no one has built a large fund dedicated to that asset. So our goal is to build that fund over the course of next year, probably with a number of LPs or in a, some kind of a joint venture where we'll be on the investment committee and really provide the, the data input for the asset selection. So that's one of the big plans we have for next year. It's interesting because your platform basically have the data analytics and the market making capability of determining the correct price and building a fund on top of it seems very natural as compared to a lot of these kind of vertically integrated use cases. You have assembled a five-star team, and I would like to know who is on your team and also who are your investors as well who have mm -hmm. backed you on this. 
So as I said, we were in stealth for a year and a half, two years, and it was a very small team. But obviously the most important hire was our CTO, who I mentioned before, Abraham, who was at the National University of Singapore. And uh, he really built the product, so many dimensions of it. We hired a user interface designer. We have a software team that built the kind of stack. So we've grown and grown. And now we're 18 people, actually close to 20 people full-time, quite a large data research team. Now, obviously, sales and marketing team, which is primarily located in the United States, myself over here in Singapore. So we're quite distributed, actually, between Southeast Asia, near Singapore, South Asia, and the United States. So we're now really a global company. We use quite a quite a chore, really, managing things from this side of the world. In terms of funding, well, we actually probably will have a break-even or profitable year, this being our very first year of operations. So I'm very pleased with that. That said, we've had such strong support from friends and family that we did raise a seed round this year. And that includes some venture funds that have also been very supportive that really are friends and family as well. That includes the very well-known Jungle Ventures here in Singapore and other smaller VCs, family offices, you might say real estate tycoons, high net worth individuals, people adjacent to or directly in the property space software experts and so forth. So we have a very distributed group of 20, 25 investors, many of which are disclosed on our website, some of whom are recused, but phenomenal, phenomenal group. And our board is first rate executives with real estate finance backgrounds. I've just brought on a chief science officer, Michael Ferrari, who himself is a climate physics PhD, but has worked on buy side and sell side, both in financial institutions. So really understands the markets. And it's great. It's great to not be doing this alone, let's say, anymore. I'm very much looking forward to your success in this space. I'm pretty curious, thinking about the climate change situation. What are the likely scenarios now for humans to solve for climate change? And I think, what is your optimism level look like after the recent COP27? Well, the COP summits never make me more optimistic for the future of humanity. Uh, in my second book, I had a line in there that was not appreciated by quite a few people who work in multilateral institutions. I said, every third world economist who works at the World Bank or IMF should be sent home with a shovel, which is to say there's a lot of talk and not a lot of action. And there's a famous quip, of course, about this these summits that say, if only you could solve climate change with more hot air. And the COP27 in Egypt was obviously more of the same. That said, adaptation is creeping up the agenda more. But again, in probably the wrong guise, loss and reparations funds, or loss and damage funds that amount to reparations are not really going to pass muster. There far less money will ever actually arrive than is needed. Instead, this should be thought of as an investment proposition to maintain the economic dynamism of, of societies that would be much higher performing if not for climate risk. And of course, these are places where we hope to get either lower labor costs or access their growing markets and middle class. So there is really a positive feedback loop to investing in climate adaptation rather than viewing this as a political debate over reparations between North and South and so forth. So Again, very disappointed. What I would like to see in terms of the next steps in the diplomacy, both across the public and the private sector, is to focus on technology transfer. I would take every summit, every dollar spent on pavilions and uh, certainly on private jet travel from uh, capital cities to these summits, and I would put every penny of it into technology transfer. And whether that's genetically modified seeds or water desalination, you know, you pick. 
but I would focus on, of course, solar power and all of these kinds of things. I would put all of the money into that, look at how to commercialize that technology transfer pipeline, because that's really what most of the world needs right now. It really doesn't need more summits and commitments that don't get implemented. My penultimate question. So we are coming to the end of 2022. And what do you look forward in 2023? Well, we actually just talked about it a while ago, launching uh, this new product, moving from just an analytics software company, albeit a very powerful and predictive one with real world implications towards fund construction and asset management is really significant because it's really part of my personal dream and passion around, uh, again, human geography. And it even will touch on political sovereignty in many ways because we're effectively going to be buying large amounts of land and property assets and ideally influencing how they're governed. And if you are a geographer and a geopolitical geek like me, we've been obsessed with this word sovereignty and with the notion of states, borders, regulations, globalization for my entire life. So this is a way of making a novel contribution, hopefully, towards how we modify sovereignty in the 21st century in the age of climate change. So that's such an enormous project that it's not only something that kicks off this year, next year that I'm looking forward to, but probably something that now will be my platform and vehicle to address this systemic change in how we organize ourselves that will occupy me for the rest of my life. So that comes to my last question then, what does great look like for Climate Alpha? Great looks like genuinely influencing day-to-day decisions around future investments. One of the things I work on a lot is sequencing, right? So why is it that we make trillions of dollars of infrastructure commitments and spend all of this money on in locations and on technologies and, and infrastructure that's going to be stranded that are going to be stranded assets, right? Instead, we should let the complex scenario modeling about the future guide our decisions about the geography of resource allocation and that we should pre we should do what i call in the move book pre-design pre-design habitats and settlements in the right locations and in the most sustainable and circular fashion and so that's a political that's a commercial it's a technological agenda and those agendas coming together are what i'm trying to advance and advocate so great looks like us actually achieving that, pushing for that, having great pilots and test cases that involve software and finance and diplomacy all coming together and really driving that process forward and building a coalition around that agenda. And that's what, again, I'm devoting myself to. And great looks like achieving that in a sustained way, in a reproducible way, in a way that has a lot of momentum and a lot of support. So that's what I'm focused on. So Parag, many thanks for coming on the show. And I know you have a busy schedule moving ahead. But in closing, I have my two favorite questions. My first question is, any recommendations that have inspired you recently? We're shifting topics and maybe coming back to where we started in the conversation just with a political tour du monde. But a great book that I recommend is called Uncorruptible by Brian Kloss. And he's an American political scientist and theorist who lives and teaches in London. And this is a wonderful book about the individual leaders and their interaction with political systems in different parts of the world and how incentives, whether it's, again, individual incentives or system incentives, counteract or accelerate or reinforce this notion that absolute power corrupts absolutely. And he looks at the kind of the heroes, if you will, in the sense that we actually in Singapore underappreciated, which is kind of selfless public servants and bureaucratic institutions that have an independent character. 
as being the kinds of systems that are least corruptible. And it's a wonderful study full of fantastic case studies ranging from behavioral economic uh, to everyday politics and unstable, corrupt societies around the world. So it's a great read full of rich evidence and analysis. You're always full of good book recommendations. So the last question, how can my audience find you? Well, I'm on social media, not very active, but Twitter at Parag Khanna, paragkhanna.com. And those are the two usual. LinkedIn probably is where... um, my most serious and professional posts go, as with everyone else. And your new website, climatealpha.com, right? Climatealpha.ai for Climate Alpha. Ah. And please do check out climatealpha.ai, where we are constantly updating new material. We have an insights page, which has articles and publications. We have a news page. We have product page. And of course, contact information and so forth. And of course, you can find us anywhere in any podcast platform and possibly maybe video platform these days. So, uh, and also tweet to us or give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and you can definitely give us your feedback as well. Once again, Parag, many thanks for coming on the show and I wish you all the best for 2023 and and we're going to be talking next year again, right? Of course we will. Five stars to you always, Bernard. Thank you so much and definitely see you in the new year.